Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3? Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 6. Hebrews contains several warning passages. And we come to the second warning passage this morning, found in verse 6. And it flows from an argument that is being made all the way from the first verse, and that is that Christ is greater. The argument starts off with that Christ was greater than the angels, and the, he was, this was a necessary statement because it was the angels that mediated the law to Moses. And the argument continues to go forth that Jesus is greater. Now we go and see in chapter 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so here's the argument. Jesus is greater than the angels, and the angels were the mediators to give Moses the law. And so now the argument moves to this. Jesus is greater than Moses, the one who received the law to give to the people. And the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses continues through this third chapter, and then there's going to be a comparison of Jesus to Joshua, and the statement is there that Jesus is greater than Joshua as well. Now it's important that we understand that the recipients of this letter were Jewish. And so the temptation was for them to look back on places where they found comfort. They found comfort in angels. They found comfort in Moses. They found comfort in the law. And as they faced persecution, they started to look back at those things for their comfort, for their security. And so the whole point of Hebrews is to say, don't look back to those things that once identified your life. Look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as these arguments are being made, intermixed in there are these warning passages. Do not drift. Do not fade away. Hang on. Hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who endure to the end are of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we hear in verse 1, the Word of God through verse 6, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the Apostle, and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. 
There's one point to this sermon. It's always nice to try to divide a sermon by three points. But there's one point to this sermon. It's this. Consider Jesus. That's the whole flow of thought. And we're called to consider Jesus by way of contrast to Moses. So here's the point for us, as it was for the Hebrews, we need to consider Jesus. Notice verse 1, it begins with therefore, which is a conclusion to all that was taking place before. It connects us to the previous chapters, to the previous verses. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus sanctified you. Jesus calls you brother. Uh, Through Jesus you were adopted children of God. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered Satan. There's no longer a fear of death for you. He is here to help you if you are tempted. Therefore, that's the connection. Therefore, holy brothers... Would you have a problem being called a holy brother? If you're in Christ, that's what you're called here. It means that you're specifically set apart. And this tells us who the author is addressing. He's addressing Christians. He's addressing those that are professing Christ. They are called, he calls, holy brothers. And you look at verse 11 of chapter 2. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy. So he's speaking to those that profess Christ, that have been set apart by Christ. But there's something else that we should take about that is there is a legal aspect of that. If you're in Christ, you are set apart as holy. But it also indicates something about the Christian human nature. And that is this, is that you are considered holy by God. Christ changes us. Not only are we positionally set apart, but because of what Christ does for us and because His Spirit dwells in us, we are not made holy before God because of Christ's righteousness, but we also then become holy in our living. Not only are we set apart, but we believe that we are set apart for holiness and that that actually starts to transform us in our lives. We have a calling, and it's called this, a heavenly calling. Which means this is that you're set apart, you're holy, and you have been called from above. It means we're citizens of a different realm. When you come into Christ, you now call Christ brother. God is your father. But now you're a citizen of a different place. That calling comes from heaven. You think of what Jesus tells Nicodemus. I tell you, if you are to know God, you must be what? Born again. And it's literally born from above. You have to have a heavenly calling from you. And that is to say that not only are we set apart... This changes us, but we are also no longer citizens of this world. We see this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you are in Christ, you have been called out of heaven itself or called from heaven itself. And that now is your identity. That is your statement of being holy is that you are of a different realm. I think it starts off with this before it goes into the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses to not only remind us of who we are in Christ and what we have been given in Christ, but this is also sets forth the audience to whom he's addressing. You're not of this world. You're not of this current order. There's something different that has taken place to you. So you listen to this and you think this was addressed to the Hebrews and it was, this is God's word for us too. And so if Christ were to address you through his word today, he addresses you as a holy brethren that has been called from heaven. Let that sink in when we think about what it means to be a child of God. We have been set apart and we have a citizenship that is in heaven. Let me tell you, We need this reminder. We need this reminder on a daily basis that in Christ we've been set apart and that in Christ we are no longer citizens here, but we have a heavenly citizenship. And so what is the call to those that have been set apart in Christ and have this citizenship? Here it is. While we're living here, while we're living now, we're given the directions, and it's this. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I, I love what the Puritan John Trapp says about this in his commentary. He says, consider Jesus means this, is to bend your minds with utmost diligence upon him. Don't you just love that phraseology, bend your minds with diligence? So to consider Jesus is not just to have Jesus as a, a passing thought, but it is to put your mind upon Him actively and continually. You are to be thinking about Jesus. Now the text is going to give us some things to consider about Jesus. And here's how specifically the text is going to tell us to think about Jesus. It's going to tell us to consider Jesus by way of contrast or comparison to Moses. So how do I consider Jesus? Well, we're going to consider by contrast. And here's where the context is relevant for us, is the people had one eye on Jesus, and they had one eye on Moses. And the author is saying, take your eyes off of Moses and look to Jesus. They had one eye on Jesus, and they had one eye on Mount Sinai. They were looking to Mount Legality for comfort rather than looking to the lawgiver and fulfiller of that law. They began to look back at the law itself and Moses himself as a form of comfort and an answer to their problems. And so we're called here to contrast Moses and Jesus. And now you'll notice the first contrast is this, is that they were both faithful. They were both faithful. It says that who was faithful, speaking of Jesus, just as Moses also was faithful. Jesus was faithful, 
And Moses was faithful. And when we think about the faithfulness of Moses, I can be I'm reminded of when his brother and sister opposed him, and God appeared in vindication of Moses and said this, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. That God, was God's normal means of, of speaking to a prophet for them to communicate. But listen to what God says about Moses that elevates Moses above just your regular prophet. He says, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. That's, that's a literal translation. I speak mouth to mouth. That is like, I speak face to face to Moses. With other prophets, I speak in dreams, I speak in visions, but with Moses, he's faithful in my house. I speak face to face. And he goes on to say, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. The Lord himself declared that Moses was faithful with his role. Moses was faithful in God's house. And the Lord himself comes and defends Moses when his brother and sister were opposing him. But Jesus was also faithful. In fact, we're told here Jesus is the high priest of our confession And he's faithful as the high priest of our confession. What does it mean to confess? It means that you have professed something, you have a belief in something. And so as he's addressing the Hebrew audience, he is saying they have embraced who Jesus is and the work he accomplished. He was a faithful high priest. But he was also a faithful apostle, it says. Notice what the text says. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful. So the identification of Jesus as a high priest, Jesus as an apostle, are applied to Jesus. The apostle, to be an apostle just means you're a sent one. means you are sent as a... On behalf of another one? I just want you to put these two ideas together. Jesus is sent as an apostle to whom? His people. And as a high priest, his work is before God on behalf of who? His people. Now, we're considering Jesus here by contrast to Moses. So Jesus is sent to his people. Jesus is a high priest on behalf of his people. And one aspect of this gives us Jesus' work before people, and the other shows us Jesus before God on behalf of the people to whom he was sent. But consider Moses for a second. Jesus is sent to the people as an apostle, and he is a high priest to the, uh, for the people. Well, wasn't, wasn't Moses sent as well? You look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, where God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh for this purpose, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
So Moses is sent on behalf of the people to the people to deliver them from Egypt. Now, what is the greatest event in the Old Testament that takes place? It's the Exodus. That's the greatest event that takes place in the Old Testament. Moses is the man that is chosen by God to be sent into Egypt to rescue the people and lead them through the wilderness. Moses was a faithful apostle in terms of he was a faithful one that was sent. But what about this high priest business? It says Christ was the high priest of our confession. What about Moses? Because Moses wasn't the high priest. His brother Aaron was the high priest. But yet, it's interesting when you're reading the biblical narrative, it's actually Moses who intercedes on behalf of the people, as a priest would. In fact, we see in chapter 32 of Exodus after the golden calf incident that the designated high priest Aaron crafted. It's not Aaron interceding on behalf of the people as God's wrath is being poured out upon them and Moses is going to stand, if you will, in the way of God's wrath before it hits the people. He intercedes on them. It says in Exodus 32, 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The people are going to be consumed by the wrath of God. And Moses stands in the gap for the people, mediating on their behalf as they were going to face God's wrath. You can understand why the Hebrews would be tempted to look back to Moses, wouldn't you? Because what are the Hebrews facing right at this time? What was the context of this letter? The Hebrews were facing persecution. They were facing persecution from their neighbors, from their government. They were facing things that were frightening. And so when times get tough they start to look back to Moses. He was sent by God. He interceded on behalf of the people with God. So they look back at him. But there's something else to consider why that might be a temptation for them. Moses gave the law that set up a society of people in a nation And the blessing of keeping that law was that they got to stay in that nation unaccosted by their neighbors. But through disobedience, God would kick them out of the land and they would experience persecution from their neighbors. 
And so why would that be a temptation to look back to Moses? Well, they're looking back at how God had set apart a people for himself. And they look at the immorality that's all around them and they say, wait, if we go back to Moses and keep the law, maybe we will receive blessing and no longer be under this curse. What's the problem with that rationale? Well, first it ignores the fact that the Mosaic Code was for a nation and not for all nations. But there's another thing about this too. Is the law neither saves nor transforms anyone. The law cannot. Only Christ is said to help those who are tempted. And there's two things I want to note about this. And the first is this is, in this, Moses is not denigrated, nor is the law. Actually, Moses is venerated through this with great reverence. He was faithful in God's house. But the second thing is this, the solution for Christians in a pluralistic society, where that society hates Christians, is not for the Christian to consider Moses and the law, but rather to consider Jesus. We're told here, consider Jesus specifically. Don't consider Moses. And there's a subtle subtle trap that we sometimes fall into, maybe not in terms of thinking of the law, but in terms of thinking about our own personal circumstances. We sometimes think, because I didn't do this, now God's curse is upon me. As if God's grace is dependent upon your performance. Praise God, God's grace is not dependent upon your performance. If it was, we would receive no grace because we would not deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And so the point here is to consider Jesus. Moses could not change hearts. The law could not change hearts. But Jesus changed hearts. Do not look to the lesser means, even if those lesser means, such as Moses and the law, are wonderful. They are infinitely less than Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus is greater in his appointment than Moses was. Notice what the text says in verse 2, that they were appointed. Christ was appointed. Moses was appointed. Now, it's an amazing statement to think about. It's somewhat hard to imagine when we say that phrase that Jesus was appointed by God. It's not hard to see how Moses was appointed. Moses was just a man just like us, but Jesus, because he is God, it's hard understand and wrap our minds around that because he was appointed the God man and you see just a brief moment here the mystery of the Trinity is that the father sends the son and both the father and the son pour out the spirit yet they are one the plan to send the son to appoint the son was an eternal plan just as Moses was known in eternity. But there's a difference. There's a difference in appointing Moses and appointing the Son, and this is what we're to consider. Moses was appointed 
to prepare for the one that is finally sent and appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses was preparatory, whereas Jesus was the final culmination. Look at verse 5. Again, it testifies to Moses' faithfulness. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. Moses spoke of Jesus, in other words. You go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. It says this long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In the past, He spoke through men like Moses, but now the final culmination is this, as He speaks in Jesus, but it's a statement. Moses was appointed to speak of Jesus. Why would you look back to Moses and the law for salvation? They were actually meant to point you towards Jesus, not the other way around. This is why Paul writes that the law itself is a teacher in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian, our teacher, until Christ came. In other words, Moses gave the law, yes, it was to govern a people, but it also made them desperate. And why did it make them desperate? Because they couldn't keep it. And so they had to look forward to a greater promise, and that is the promise that Moses testified to. Jesus was the full culmination of all that Moses wrote of. We see how else Jesus is also uh, superior. It says that he was been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, it means to be counted more worthy. It, it, It means that he has been deemed more Worthy, he has been counted more worthy, which is an interesting phrase to say that this is an established fact that Christ is more worthy. It's something he has earned of a title. And you might think, well, of course Jesus is more worthy of glory, he's God. But that's not the point. The point is looking at Jesus, the human name given to the Messiah. So it speaks of his work that he accomplished. And because of his work that he accomplished, he claims the higher glory. He is infinitely higher than Moses. Moses did not accomplish salvation through the cross, through his suffering, through his perfect life lived, through resurrection, through his ascension and enthronement on the crown. Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory. Consider Jesus in that. Now consider for a second just Moses by way of contrast. Did Moses accomplish salvation for Israel? Think about it. Was Moses successful in the children of Israel being delivered? Yes. 
they were saved. Did he avert God's wrath on behalf of the people? Yes, he did. God's wrath was appeased. But here's the difference between what Jesus did and what Moses did. That was temporal. Jesus accomplishes only what God could accomplish, which is eternal life. Moses was not able to attain eternal life. He was able to momentarily rescue them from a bad situation. So if you think about this, consider Jesus, because we're under persecution and we're, we're facing suffering and times are tough, and we look back and I don't want to be in this circumstance anymore. Well, you might look to Moses because he delivered them from a temporal circumstance. Jesus doesn't just deliver us from a temporal circumstance. He delivers us to eternal life. He delivers us to eternal life. And this is why Moses testified about him. Jesus accomplished what only God could accomplish, eternal life. And Moses himself told of this. In fact, we read in John chapter 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So people oftentimes, even Jesus' time, they were setting their hope on Moses, not on God. And then Jesus says this, these words that delivers a crushing blow to the Pharisees at the time. He says, For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus says explicitly that the words of Moses and his own words and his own life are not in contradiction, but actually Moses said he was the one who testified as to who would come. Jesus goes on to say, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So if Moses was standing before us, Moses would tell us not to consider him. Moses would tell us to consider Jesus. Moses would tell us there is a better covenant than the one given to him. In fact, we even see that this was uh, the point of it in chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice what it says. The past, the law, all of those things were a shadow to the true substance of what was to come. And it's fulfilled in Christ. Moses just testified to these things. Christ is the fulfillment of them. Another reason we need to consider Jesus over Moses is Jesus is greater as the builder of the house. Moses was in the house, but Jesus is the one who actually builds the house. Notice what it says. It says, For Jesus, this is verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house. 
Jesus is said to be the builder of the house. And he says the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Who's the builder? Look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was in the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. And the builder of the house receives greater glory than the house itself. Why is that? Well, because the house itself is passive. The house doesn't do anything. The house doesn't just build itself. The house doesn't plan itself. The house doesn't contract all of the necessary parts and the contingent things to become a building. It's the builder that does that. The builder's the one who puts all of the necessary pieces together so that it might happen. It's the builder that plans and executes the plans and sees that everything is built. And so the building then is dependent upon the builder. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the builder for it. And just for a second, consider Moses' role in this, though. Moses had fled Pharaoh as a murderer. And one of the priests of Midian's daughters catches his eye. And he says, I think I would like to stay here since I'm a wanted man in Egypt. And as Moses is caring for his father-in-law Jethro's flock, living life, nearly 80 years old at this point, not thinking about being the most pivotal man in God's redemptive history, just doing his thing. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses sees something that's phenomenal, and he has the same reaction you and I would have. What's that? Why isn't this bush being burnt up? Verse 4 says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Now, just pause for a second. Moses is living life normally. As his family, he's doing shepherding the flock for his father-in-law. And out of nowhere, a bush is... A fire is coming from it, but but the it, the bush itself is not fueling the fire. This is God. This is a direct revelation of God Himself in some sort of visible way of seeing, manifesting Himself visibly. It's it's really actually Christ calling Moses for a specific purpose to be this part of this house. And you might think, well, Moses is the one that's building this house because he's going to call the children of Israel out of Egypt. But actually, look at the bigger picture. It's Christ calling Moses to call a people out of Egypt. What is Christ doing from the bush? Building 
a people. From the bush itself, Christ is the builder of the people. Moses was simply a guy that was living life and God calls him. And Jesus is far worthy of greater glory as the builder of the house because Moses was part of that building. And verse 4 tells us specifically, and this is in relation to Christ, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now consider this for a second. Consider Jesus for a moment. Explicitly, verse 4 tells us what about Jesus? He's God. It's a statement of His deity. But then we see the name Jesus in this, which which reminds us of of His humanity. It says Jesus is the builder of the house. But you think about what else Jesus has been attributed with. It says in verse 10 of chapter 1, You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What is that a statement of? That Jesus created the world. And now what we see right here in chapter 3, in verse 3 and verse 4, that Jesus is actually building a people. This is nothing less than a statement of Jesus' absolute sovereignty over all of human history. How did Moses get to the place where he was? Why was he the one chosen? Was that just some random act of God, or was that part of God's eternal decree and plan that was unfolding just as God had planned it? You see, this is a statement of more than just Jesus' deity. It is to say that Jesus is sovereign over all of creation, but He is sovereign over all of human history. He is sovereign over all of our lives. It's an amazing statement. So to the Hebrews, he says, why would you look to Moses? Why would you look back to the the law for comfort or for salvation? When we can look to the one who built the house himself. There's another reason Jesus is greater, and we need to consider this, is Jesus is greater as Lord of the house. It specifically teaches us that Christ was over the house. You'll notice... Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. But we need to notice what it says about Moses. In verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house. So here's the difference. Jesus is over God's house. Moses is in the house. Christ is the Lord of the house. Christ is the head of the house. Moses was faithful, but he was in the house. Because he's not the builder of the house, it is God's house, and Christ is the builder of it. Now Moses' household was Israel, those that were true believers and those that were not. It was those, it was a mixed group of those that truly believed and those that did not believe. And they received a land, and they received a law to govern them in that land. But Jesus, we're told here, is house, his household is what? Look at verse 1. Holy brothers, those who have received a heavenly calling. It's an amazing thing when you put this together. Because Jesus not only built the house that would lead to his own birth, 
but he builds the house of those that the Father had given him to be in the house. A house not made by human hands, but the church. And Christ is the Lord of the church. He builds it, he governs it, he protects it, he rules over it. Finally, Moses is called a servant, but Jesus is called son. He rules over the house as the son. He is the inheritor of all things. So consider all that has been said. Moses spoke of Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses spoke of. Moses was part of the house, but Jesus built the house. Moses was in the house, but Jesus is over the house. Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the son. He's the one who inherits inherits all the possessions. Why would you look back to Moses? We're called to consider Jesus. Now, think of all that's been said. Holy brothers, verse 1, who share in a heavenly calling. This is speaking to those that profess Christ. If you have that heavenly calling, it means you're part of that house. If you are set apart by Christ and considered a holy brother, that means that you, this is your house. But the warning comes at the end of verse 6. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That little word if is a frightening word, isn't it? makes us pause. I'm part of that house that says, if we hold fast our confidence in boasting in our hope. Does this mean if I don't persevere to the end that we lose our salvation? Is that what that's saying? No. It means you never had it. It means it was never there. This is a moment for us to pause and reflect upon for a second. Are we like the seed that is scattered among the rocks? We sprout up and then quickly fade away. Are we like the seed that is thrown out there and is almost instantly choked out by weeds? Or are we the seed that has been planted in fertile soil of the gospel and growing and bearing fruit? Now, I've been saying this whole time because the text says it, consider Jesus. But for a second, let's consider Moses as we think about this conditional statement and how it applies to our life. Consider Moses. He was called by God and held fast to the confession. Moses made it to the end, but you go, wait a second. Moses blew it. He lost his temper. He struck the rock rather than speaking to it as God told him to. And because of that, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. And you're right. But what did Moses do? He held fast to the confession. And the Lord let him see it from a distance. 
And why? Because Moses was called by God, a heavenly calling. Moses was called and set apart by God. He was sanctified by God. And the whole point is this, is we're a lot like Moses. As we travel through this life, we might lose our temper and strike the rock rather than speak to it as God commands us. But those that have a heavenly calling, those that are the holy brethren, they will persevere to the end, and you will receive that confident hope that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the call for us is this, is consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our faith. I want us to think about this in a few ways. If we in Christ are called holy, if we are in his heavenly family, there are, there are really three things that we can consider about that, and it's this, is we belong to this heavenly calling, and that is the best means of dealing with suffering in this world. Is to recognize that all that I have here is not all that there is. But there's actually something greater waiting for me. In fact, when Paul speaks of that heavenly calling, he says that we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. He says that in Philippians, meaning this, is that if we're of that heavenly calling, what we for now is not all there is. But we are to be living and waiting for something that is greater. The realization of the heavenly calling. But there's another aspect of this heavenly calling then, and that's ethical. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Literally, he's saying, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, is this, is that if I'm part of that heavenly calling, I need to act like it? I need to act like I'm part of the citizenship of heaven? And there's a third thing that we can think about, and certainly there's more, but what does this indicate about our relationship with one another? says we have a heavenly calling and we're called the heavenly brethren, it means that those that are in Christ are family. We're told in Scripture, Matthew chapter 23, that we have one father. In Romans chapter 8, one elder brother. In Ephesians 4, we say we have one spirit. In Romans chapter 8, we are joint heirs with Christ. We share all of these things. These are unique. These are supernatural. These are given to us from above. They're not something that we can create with the will of man. It's something given to us. So what does that heavenly calling and heavenly brethren mean for us now? It means that there is a relational aspect that we have to recognize. And it's this, is everyone in this room that is saved by God's grace is saved by grace, meaning you didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Doesn't that equal the playing field between brothers and sisters? None of us can say, I merited heaven. None of us can say, I did something and God said, I need that guy on my team. That changes how we view one another and how we ought to treat one another. 
And it also means that because we're part of this heavenly citizenship, we live in relation with one another of mutual accountability. It means that our love for one another is a testimony to the world that we are a family, that we forgive when we are wrong, that we don't hold grudges, we don't allow bitterness to creep up, but we love one another, and that's our testimony that we're part of this heavenly citizenship. And so what are we called to do? We're called to consider Jesus. Why must we be told this if we're already Christians? Haven't we already considered Jesus when we received him? The verb here to consider Jesus is imperative and it's active. It means it's a command and it means it's continuance. This is the key to perseverance. Consider Jesus. How do I hold fast? Consider Jesus. Behold him. Sit at the feet of our merciful high priest and apostle. In times of trouble, consider Jesus. In times of doubt, consider Jesus. In times of stress and anxiety, consider Jesus. In temptation, consider Jesus. In the joys of life, consider Jesus. In the sadness and loss and disappointment that we face in life, consider Jesus. In season and out of season, which is all seasons in the totality of our life, we are to do what? Consider Jesus. Let us spend this day and every day considering our merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and that in him we are set apart, that we're even called holy. We thank you for this heavenly calling, this supernatural calling, where we are born again, given a new heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great mercy we see in Jesus and his grace that we are chosen not based upon anything that we have done, but according to your choice and your good pleasure. And Father, we as the Hebrews, we recognize that uh, we live in the midst of a society that does not like Christianity, that does not like your word, that hates Jesus, just as Jesus said. And so may we be reminded here that we, we deal with this not by looking back to the law, not by looking back to our former way of life, but rather we consider Jesus. And so we pray that your grace would be rich upon us, that we would consider Jesus in all things and at all times. It's in his name we pray. Amen.